Let's, uh, let's pray together. Father, thank you for your grace and your mercy to us in Christ. Thank you for the word that you've given to us to instruct us about yourself and how we ought to respond to you. Father, I pray that we would humble ourselves under your mighty hand, that you may lift us up, especially before this word. Father, I pray that you would give us the grace to believe what you say about yourself. Father, give me the grace to preach accurately for your glory and for the benefit of the souls before me. Father, would you exalt yourself this morning? I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. You know, Ray said it well. We do try to really gauge ourselves, review ourselves. We do it both at an elder level, try to do it at a personal level too. I, I'm always trying to assess where, I'm, where am I with God? Am I growing? Am I, you know, kind of moving towards apathy with my faith? It's not something you set in place and it sticks, but I'm constantly going back to it. I ask questions of myself, such as, am, am I am I governed more by God's word? Not do I know it, but am I governed by it? Um, other questions I ask, am I more concerned with the physical and spiritual needs of others, or have I kind of just sunk back within myself and my own personal needs? I ask questions, am I more aware of my sin? Am I more willing to forgive others? Am I more willing to think about the coming of Christ? Does it affect the way I live? I, I do this to kind of test myself to see where I am on a continuum of faith. Am I growing? Am I sliding to apathy? We're going to look in the book of Malachi over about the next nine weeks. And in this book, um, it's really the la- it is the last book of the Old Testament. After Malachi, there'll be a period of 400 years of prophetic silence. There'll be no voice until John the Baptist comes and begins to announce the coming of Jesus Christ. It's a book written to prepare us for the coming of Messiah. It's a, it's a book written to a spiritually apathetic people, but they're a spiritually privileged people, but they're not living that way. And God in this book will take aim at our tendency towards apathy. He takes aim at their joyless worship. He takes aim at their corrupted leadership. He takes aim at their marriages in disrepair. He takes aim at their materialism. He takes aim at their lack of care for the injustices all around them. It's going to be a very challenging book, revealing to us where are we in that continuum of, am I growing in my love for Christ? Thankfully, God in mercy sends Malachi to wake up these people of promise before the coming of the child of promise. My hope for us this week and with the weeks following is that you're going to see the parallels. You know, I know many of you would claim a sincere faith in Christ. I know many of you love being in the kingdom of God. I know many of you want Christ to return, that he might restore all things to the Father. And yet I know many of you don't grasp the love of God. I know many of you 
have great difficulty in your marriages, almost at the point of despairing that they'll ever change. I know many of you are stuck in a materialistic cycle. I know many of you walk about many of your days without any concern for the the injustices all around you. And this book will challenge you. It's going to challenge you, and if you listen, then I think it's going to change you. If you ignore it, I think it's going to ultimately condemn you. So if you will, turn with me to Malachi chapter 1. We'll read the first five verses. Malachi, it's the last book in the Old Testament. That would mean it's right before Matthew. Malachi 1, 1 through 5. He writes, The oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. I have loved you, says the Lord. But you say, how have you loved us? Is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord. Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. I have laid waste his hill country and left his heritage to jackals of the desert. If Edom says we are shattered, but we will rebuild the ruins, the Lord of hosts says they may rebuild, but I will tear down. And they will be called the wicked country and the people with whom the Lord is angry forever. Your own eyes will see this and you shall say great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. My question is, who picked Malachi to go into next? (laughs) The oracle of the Lord. So that word oracle can be translated burden. That's what I feel right now. It's a burden. It's a weight. The the word means it's something to carry. This is a, a burden of the Lord's word to the people of Israel by Malachi. It's a burden to me. I think it should be a burden to you. It's a burden to me that I get it right, that this is the word of Yahweh. Every time that phrase is used, it's divine, it's divine revelation. God's revealing himself to you and to me. Out of the 57 verses in this book, 47 are God speaking directly. There is no other book that has that percentage of God's direct speech to the people. I want to get it right. I don't want to overinterpret. I don't want to underinterpret. It's been a grueling week trying to get it right and to apply it diligently and appropriately to you. It's also a burden. This oracle, this burden of the word of the Lord is such because I know that some of you will receive it and I believe be freed in your greater understanding of God. And I think some of you will reject it. You won't believe it. And that's a burden. It's a burden to deliver God's word like this, knowing that it will not fully be received. This week, I've identified more with what Paul said in 2 Corinthians 2. He says, we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, a fragrance from death to death. To the other, a fragrance from life to life. Who is sufficient for these things? In other words, delivering the word of God to people. And knowing that all will not embrace and fall down and submit and worship means that I'm delivering a bomb to some people. And that is a burden. You know, Charles Spurgeon was, um, many of you know this, this is free, this is off notes, but Charles Spurgeon, this great preacher, he would be, uh, he preached to thousands, right? So his church was at five, 6,000 people. He was just in his young 20s. He really was a young guy, but marvelously used of God. 
And he would have these fainting spells, and sometimes he would be so depressed that he would struggle with preaching. And after preaching, he would run right to his office to pray. And, and I wondered, was it just the crowds that would get him nervous? You know, preaching to massive crowds, preaching to crowds as many as 20,000 people. And uh, he was never scared of the crowds. What drove him to such fear was that he would mishandle God's word. And I don't want to do it, so that's a burden. The burden to you is to believe this, because, friends, this is going to be a hard message for some of you. It's going to be a very sobering word. It's not going to come pleasing to a culture that is just drunk with tolerance and meism. It's a hard word. And so I just I encourage you to recognize that if you hear it that way, you're probably hearing it right. It's coming from Malachi. Malachi means angel or messenger. And he's going to be delivering this word. We believe it's probably around the time of the mid-5th century B.C., so it's post-exile. What that means is in 587 when Babylon took the people of Israel and deported them to Babylon. And then there were three waves of people coming back. Of course, the first group came with Zerubbabel. They rebuilt the temple. Another wave came back, they believe, with Ezra, the establishing of the law. And then the third wave came back, perhaps, with, well, it was with Nehemiah and the rebuilding of the, of the walls. So the temple was built, the law was brought, and then the building of the walls. Now, Malachi is probably around the time of Nehemiah, perhaps, afterwards. So they had been back in the land for 100, maybe 125 years. And they had grown soft again. They came back with an excitement that the land is being restored. Israel's being repatriated to the land. The temple's rebuilt. This is all incredible. But then 100, 125 years later, it's just flatlining spiritually. And so God disputes with them. And the book is written around six disputes. God is going to make an assertion. He's going to make a statement. Israel is going to question God on his statement, and then God's going to answer them. And that's the way the sermon series is going to go. One of those will break into two sermons, but just God's going to say it, and then God's going to say, but you say, and then God's going to answer him. This first dispute that he has is over their ignorance regarding their love for God, that they don't understand the love of God. Now, what's amazing to me about the grace of God is that here God is coming to challenge a spiritually apathetic people. And the first thing he says is, I've loved you. I've loved you. That isn't the way that I always do parenting. I don't always come with, I've loved you, when I go to discipline my children. And I was chided by that. He says, I've loved you. Now, a a good faith filled Israelite would have known that God has loved them. He would have known it because in Genesis 12, God called Abraham out of these people, the land of Ur, and he says, I'm going to establish you as my people in my land to enjoy my blessings. That was his great and glorious promise in Genesis 12. But God did more than just create the people. He also gave them the law. He gave them the sacrificial system that would point to Christ. He gave them priests and prophets and kings to guide and lead and instruct so that they might walk as the people of God. God did all this owing to nothing that they've done. He just called Abraham. It wasn't because he was great and glorious. In Deuteronomy, he says, I didn't call you because you were more numerous. 
called you because I love you. Now, the people didn't see that. And that's why you see in the text here, he says, he says, I've loved you, says the Lord. And so Malachi, we don't know if these people actually said this or he was just expressing the attitude of their hearts, but they say, how have you loved us? In other words, kind of, a, what have you done for me lately? It's when you read it and you can hear the people saying, how have you loved us? I mean, you're almost embarrassed for him. You can't believe they would hold that attitude before God. But you know what? I find it really to be similar to us. And there's a lot of reasons we doubt God's love. And I'm going to try to draw them out of Malachi, but apply them to us. Number one, I think you're focused. We get focused on the circumstances of life. And we begin to then question God's love for us, right? So here... They've been back in the land. They were, they were kind of free, but the Persian government was still pressing down on them a bit. Uh, they had a temple, but the temple was really just a shadow of what the first temple was. Um, they were able to exist in the land, but, but there was this great oppression from their neighboring nations. And so they're thinking, you know, what's so great about what you've given us? They're really questioning his love. I see the same thing with us. I see the same thing in my own soul. I mean, your marriage is in absolute disrepair. You begin to wonder, God, how have you loved me? Or your your child's just out of control. Your finances are pressing on you. You have a chronic illness that will not go away. And we begin to think, well, God, tell me again, how have you loved me? Because the circumstances right now are blinding me to the incremental grace that you may be moving in through these trials. Uh, secondly, I think we become familiar with these cosmic truths of God. We forget that he loves us because we just get familiar with it. You're raised in a Christian home. You hear the gospel over and over and over again. And for the Christian, it's like, oh, we'll be terrified. If you see a sweet little dog come out in the road and get mowed down by a car, we're aghast at that. We're just overwhelmed at how sad that is. And yet we think about Christ being nailed to the cross, and yeah, I know about that. And we're not, we're not moved anymore by this idea of God taking on flesh, sins being poured upon him, and then put on a tree and nailed for us. I mean, we become familiar with it. We forget that he loves us. I, I think another reason why I, I think we forget the redemptive work of God in our individual lives now, for the Israelites here, they're 125 years past the building of the temple, let's say. Now, let me remind you. So when Israel was deported in Babylon, they were prisoners. When Babylon would deport people, they would take the nation and move them and then cause them to intermarry, and, and they just begin to, to move within the fabric of Babylon, losing their culture, losing their land. They never went back. So how, what are, what's Israel doing back in the land? Well, it says at the end of Second Chronicles that God stirred the heart of King Cyrus to send people back and to write a check to build the temple. That didn't happen a lot. That must have been mind-bending. That not only were they back in the land, not only were they having a temple built out of the treasury of Persian government, but even the walls were financed. I mean, it's incredible. And they forgot that. We as Christians often forget, Carol and I will often talk about what did God draw us from? When we go back in our lives and see the the darkness, let me speak for myself, in which I lived, 
And I am here now speaking before you. I mean, it's unbelievable. God, you had to love me. I was so unlovable. What am I doing here? So we, we, we want to think about these things when we begin to doubt the love of God. What a lot of people do when they begin to doubt God's love and kind of have this attitude, how have you loved us? Some just move to make-believe. Well, I just think God's a God of love. They have no justification for it. They have no rationalization. They only think about it. They say, oh, God's love. God loves everybody. There's no discrimination in God's love. There's no differentiation. It's just God loves everybody. I don't think that satisfies for the long run because you see the disparity in lives. You begin to think, is he really loving everybody all the same in the same way? doesn't look like it, or it really looks different. Others of us, we don't move to make believe, but what we do is we, we move to make God happy with us. So, so we want to feel God's love by trying harder. And, and so many of us, even in here, are just simply religious. We think that if we do enough, God will be happy with us. Uh, it, it's, it, it's if I just have enough devotion. So if you have a great month of devotions, you feel like, wow, God really loves me. But then if you, if you intentionally turn to pornography, then all of a sudden, boom, it's the old French game. He loves me, he loves me not. He loves me, he loves me not. Hopefully you'll end on that pedal that says he loves me. I, I feel like the religious often are like the, the little boy raised in a home where he doesn't know that his dad loves him. You, you see kids, I see adults this way. They're, they, they want their dad to love them. They strive, they work. It's a terrible situation, these kids. They're, they're uncertain, they're imbalanced. Did I do enough so that he'll love me and say he's proud of me? And that's the way many of us religious are. Have I done enough for you, God? Do you love me now? We don't, because we feel God's love is so conditioned upon our behavior that his love is he loves me, he loves me not. You see it in the faces of parents, even adults that haven't been loved by their parents. Very uncertain. They're always striving, never resting in the love. They can never really sense, yes, he loves me. They're saying, how have you loved me? Now, the question's on the table here. So, so first, I think God declares his love to us in Malachi. He declares his love. But the question's on the table that we haven't answered yet. And the people ask to God, how have you loved us? Now, at this point, I'm going to try to explain it with an answer that may be surprising to you. Uh, this is the part of the sermon that might be, as one author said, uh, one pastor said, this could, be a ser- this could be a space maker. Now, what a space maker means is that probably what I'm about to say could create like extra space in here. So we- we've been having a parking problem. We've got about two dozen cars in the Target parking lot. We got them on the side, and it's trouble finding. You got to sit up front, you know, and so probably at the end of this sermon, you, you might want to come next week, and you could have a better place in the service. There might be more chairs to, um, uh, to choose from. So how does God answer the question? And this is where many of you are coming here with your walls stacked high, if you've read the if you've read the uh, worship prep, and, uh, and what I'm going to say is, I'm going to try to say it well. I want to say it humbly. Um, I want to say it clearly. So let's look at the question. They say, how have you loved us? So God answers them, and he says, is not Esau Jacob's brother? 
Now, of course, everybody would have known that Esau was Jacob's brother. They were twins. They were twins of Isaac and Rebekah. Now, um, let me explain a little bit of the story. Uh, when Rebekah was pregnant with the twins, God appears to her, right, in Genesis 25, and he says these words to her. This is the Lord. This is Yahweh speaking to her, saying, And the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other, and the older shall serve the younger. Okay, so, so she's pregnant with twins, and God has pronounced upon her, he's declared that the younger will be stronger and the older will serve the younger. That's inverted in terms of the way it normally is. I want to explain this absolutely mind-bending statement of God that Esau, that Jacob I have loved and Esau I have hated. As God said to Rebekah, it did happen. Esau was born first. Jacob was born second, and in fact, Esau did serve uh, Jacob. They also had twin, uh, they, they also had nations come from them. Jacob, of course, was the father of the, uh, the Israelites, and Esau was the father of Edom or the Edomites. And in fact, they would be divided. They would make war with each other. Edom was really Israel's greatest and longest standing enemy. Uh, terrible to Israel. Um, but what I want to explain is that uh, when he says, Jacob I loved, Esau I hated, I don't want you thinking that God is speaking out of some personal animosity against Esau. He's not speaking with this, this intrinsic hatred towards Esau. I think what he's doing is he is showing us that Jacob has been chosen by God to bring forth the promise of the Messiah to fulfill the promise in Genesis Genesis 12. In other words, Jacob is the one that God chose through him, through whom to bring the restorer and the deliverer of the world. Jacob's been chosen. That Jacob has been signaled. He's been elect. He's been called of God that he will be a blessing to the nations. You coming to me, Keith? Yeah. Now, the passage was difficult enough, and this, uh, <laughs> this makes it a little spicier. So, so what I want you to see is that, that, that God choosing Jacob is that it will be through him. And saying that God hated Esau is saying that Esau has been rejected. Esau was passed over. He was not carrying the covenant. Now, of course, it begs the question, why did you do it this way, God? I mean, why did you choose one over the other? And I think, simply put, it isn't because Jacob was better. Jacob was a deceiver and a cheat. It obviously wasn't, wasn't, um, it didn't continue with birthright prerogative that the oldest would always be first. It was against that. It was against even Jacob's wishes. Why would God choose Jacob over Esau? Other than to establish his sovereign plan. That God is showing that he is sovereign in the calling of people. Not only is he sovereign in the calling of people, 
He's sovereign in the preserving of people. Look with me in verse 3. He says, I have laid waste to his hill country and left his heritage to jackals of the desert. If Edom says we are shattered, because, but we will rebuild the ruins, the Lord of hosts says they may rebuild, but I'll tear down. In other words, God's saying that when I choose a people, I will preserve a people for my name. That God's going to do a work sovereignly in the election of people And he will preserve them, even though Edom, this arch enemy, is going to try to attack, try to regather. God says they may try, but they won't succeed. That whenever you read these oracles against foreign nations in the Old Testament, it's not simply God getting angry with people. It is about God bringing judgment upon the sin of people. But it's also to reassure the covenant people, I will be with you. I will preserve you. I will carry you until the end. Now, when we speak about this idea of election, you can see it wasn't based upon, because it was before birth, it wasn't based upon anything good or anything bad either had done. That actually is freeing to us. It gets at what I was beginning, what I was saying in the beginning, that if we think God's election is somehow rooted in what we have done or who we currently are, you will be up and down like a yo-yo. And I think this passage coming from Genesis 25, is establishing God as God. God is sovereign. Now, I know this is a mystery. I know it's difficult to understand. We are so built to see that choice is driven by measurable data and that if I do this or if I do that, then I will be either in in, in a good place or in a bad place. It's a mystery that God would move so unilaterally. But there's other mysteries I want to remind you. The mystery of the cross. I mean, we cannot comprehend the idea of Jesus Christ taking on flesh and dying. I mean, I I can explain it. I can't fully understand it. Uh, the, the, The blending of the natures of Jesus being both human and divine, I cannot fully understand that. The Trinity, a triune God, one God, we are, we are, um, We believe in one God. He's expressed himself in three distinct persons. I can't understand that. And this is why the message can be a burden, because it's mysterious. It's dark. It's foreboding. But I think that the sovereign election of God is making us understand that God is God. Let me just draw your mind to that Romans passage that Ray referred to. In Romans chapter 9, let me just read it to you, and I just ask you to hear and listen intently as I read it. Because I I think it's establishing that the sovereign love of God is by his prerogative and not by man. He says, and not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, that's Isaac, I just read that in Genesis 25, though they were not yet born, and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. So that's clear. They hadn't done anything good or bad, but God has a purpose in election. And so that we might see it, he calls, not based upon us, but it's based upon him. She was told the older will serve the younger. As it's written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? That is the natural question. If God calls unilaterally, then we do say, we cry foul. It can't be fair. 
And I would just warn you, to say it's a mystery is different than to say it's unfair. Because Paul says, by no means. For he says to Moses, I'll have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. Now I know you're thinking, well, how can you find fault? Well, Paul anticipates this question. So he says in verse 19, you will say to me then, why, the, why does he then still find fault? For who can resist his will? Now, I remember, I remember the place I was in the library studying this passage in seminary and feeling like I got to the end of 19 and I'd finally get the answer. Reconciling divine sovereignty, human responsibility. I thought, I'm finally going to get it. I'm finally going to get it. And I come to verse 20, and I'd read it before, but by the grace of God, I, I, just, I seemed to stop at 19, and I actually got excited. And then I hear Paul say to me, who are you to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? I remember absolutely being dissatisfied and at the same time being in awe that I felt like I just was about to peer over into the hole to find the mystery and I got blown so far back I didn't know who I was. I just remember thinking, God, God, you're God. I mean, this mystery is too great for me to comprehend. I was in awe. I was, stumst- I was just struck dumb. I really didn't know how to proceed. I thought I didn't get the answer I wanted. I didn't get the satisfaction I wanted, but I got an answer. And the answer is God is God. So... <clears throat> I know that this sermon may raise more questions than I answer, and that's fine. I trust God will work that out in time. But we see God here declaring a love for us. We see him displaying a love, and the way he has chosen to display it is by choosing a people unto himself. So so how do we respond to this? Why does he do it? Well, look with me in verse 5. He says, your own eyes are going to see this. I I interpret that to mean that they're going to see God deal with Edom as he did and continued to deal with. And we're going to say, great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. In other words, those whose eyes have been opened to the glory of God are going to worship him. We're overwhelmed. Great is the Lord beyond Israel. It's not simply that God is sovereign over the nations. That is true. But I think he's answering the question. That, that God's love has been demonstrated through their election and perseverance by God's Spirit. So the fact that people come to know Christ and then persevere in Christ is due to God's sovereign grace. And all we can say is, great are you, Lord. You have delivered us. I think about in First Peter. Well, well let, me, let me ask you this. Well, let me say this. The, so, so we see Israel here. So Israel's in a bit of a pickle. They're questioning God's love. He declares it to them. And then he says to them, listen, I just haven't declared my love to you. I've displayed it by electing you, by sovereignly choosing you to myself. And I'm going to persevere you. And, and, and you know, this de- declaration of my love and this display of my love is going to mean that it's going to draw you to worship me. And, and it should cause you to just love and adore me. Now, for the New Testament Christian, as I think about this, how does it apply to us today? Well, you know, we're still called to be worshiping God uh, in Christ. 
that, that, that there's, a, there's, there's obviously that, that those of you and I who see Christ as our Savior, we are thankful. We're overwhelmed with his grace, and, and we're worshiping him. Um, but we don't worship him now because he's judging other nations. We worship because he's judged the Son for us. In other words, God has now displayed his, his sovereign love for us in bringing the Son and placing upon him our sins and shame and guilt and judging him. that He became the curse, that, that he became the one bearing the wrath of God for us. And so for the, for the New Testament Christian, we're now aware that God's judgment no longer fell on Edom, but now has fallen on Christ. And, and that's how God mingles both justice and mercy. He provides mercy in electing us to himself, and he provides justice by bringing the Son so that our sins are legitimately paid for, that we no longer have to carry them, that we've been forgiven. So, so sovereign mercy leads to a worship of God. It also leads to a humility, I mean, a profound weakening of our knees. It ought to lead to tears. You know, they, they said that you cannot be a Calvinist unless you cry over the overwhelming nature of what God has done for you. If your salvation is somehow rooted in you, either the things you've done, the things you've said, the promises you've made, then just break your arm, pat yourself on the back. But if you know it's absolutely outside of yourself, before either had done anything good or bad, then there is a rest, there's a humility that comes. Let me ask you this, so you believe in Christ, and then you look at the person across the street, and they don't. And they've heard the gospel as you've heard it. So why do you believe? What makes you different? Is it you? Is it you're more discerning, more wise? You're a more persuasive preacher? Why are you different? You'll come back to its God. That's what Paul's driving at in 1 Corinthians. He says, God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. No one will boast because we have been unilaterally, by God's sovereign grace, chosen doesn't leave us proud or arrogant, my goodness. It leaves us absolutely humbled. It doesn't just leave us worshipers, and it doesn't just leave us humbled. It should leave us in fear that God is such a great God, that he has that sovereign. Nobody, folks, you may say, I don't think it's fair. Nobody, I will promise you, nobody will stand before God and say, you didn't do it fair. I mean, he chose Abraham out of the land of Ur. What about all those people? Have you ever thought about that? Or Isaac and Ishmael. He chose Isaac. What about Ishmael and all the Ishmaelites? I mean, God has a plan that's going to come to fruition in the way that he's ordained it. Doesn't mean, it does not mean God doesn't judge the innocent. Doesn't mean that we don't respond to God. Don't, Don't hear me saying it's a fatalistic, robotic type of event. We do have to respond to God, but God, we love. Why? Because he first loved us. And and then thirdly, I think a response to this isn't just worship and humility, but I also think it's a measure of our service changes. No longer are we doing things. No longer are we walking in holiness. No longer are we declaring the greatness of the kingdom. 
so that God would love us, but because God has loved us. That now that we have been elect, chosen of God, saved in Christ, that now we walk forth as Christ did, declaring the excellencies of the one who has saved us. We once were not a people, but now we are. We once were far away, but now we've been drawn near. That we are the ones that are carrying forth this word. <clears throat> this, this sermon is a burden. It's, there's a heaviness to it. I know that. And again, it's been a burden to me because I do want to preach it right. And I don't claim to have done it with perfection at all. It's a burden because some of you, I trust, will experience a measure of freedom over the fact that tomorrow, if you sin, that doesn't mean all of a sudden God's salvation has been yanked from you. Because of a besetting sin you're struggling with, you'll constantly be, he loves me, he loves me not. You know, he's chosen me and he will persevere me. He may bring discipline into my life, but he will persevere me. Hopefully it will bring freedom to some. For some, I think I've introduced a darker side of God to you. This sovereign God that is not controllable as we want him to be. And I can only ask for grace that he might reveal these things to you in his time and his way. The elders and myself, we would love to take questions if you have them about the sermon. It's a, it's a hard word, but I think it's a true word. And so let's take a few minutes now and pray. And uh, I, will, I will begin in prayer. And uh, Ray will close us in a few minutes. And, and I, I would ask one thing before I pray. Don't run from this. This is not a new thought that I'm coming up with. This isn't new. Uh, it's not fully agreed upon, for sure. Uh, but it's not new. And uh, I would rather be in dialogue with you over differences that you may have rather than have you just separate. That's not the way to work through uh, theological questions. So let's, let me pray for us. And then I would ask you to speak forth to God as well. And then Ray will close this. Father, uh, thank you for the grace that you've given to us in this word. It is a hard word. Uh, we don't fully understand it, Father. We want to walk in a manner right to it, though. We want to listen. We want to respond. We ask, how have you loved us? You tell us that you have loved Jacob. You brought forth a redeemer, that through faith in Christ we might be saved. Father, we, for those of us who see this, Lord, we are overwhelmed with your mercy in our lives. And I ask, Lord, that you would grant peace upon the troubled hearts this morning and that you might um, give sight to us in our blindness that we might understand this so that you might be honored in our lives and we might live in a manner worthy of your great name. Thank you, Father.